0: The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we're coming to you from the beautiful Sun Splash Studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And as a reminder, you can reach the show at Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail or the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And these shows, as a reminder, are archived on my website, www.JewishSacredAging.com. And we'll be back with our first segment guest, Dr. Richard Stern, right after this message from our friends at Kendall.
1: Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not for profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K E N D A L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll free 888 759 0128.
0: Good day, and welcome back to uh, our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. And we are very pleased to welcome in studio to the microphones of uh, Boomer Generation, Dr. Richard Stern, a psychologist uh, dealing with child and family issues here at private practice here in Greater Philadelphia. Welcome, 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 Dr. Stern.
1: Hello. Nice, nice to, to be see here. you.
0: Nice to see you. We're we have so much to cover, and I want to get right into it. We we want to talk a little bit about. Well, we want to talk a lot about the issue of uh, our generation baby boomers most of the time a lot of the conversation here on the show and in the press is dealing with our aging parents but I want to shift focus because it's a lot of your specialty and that's dealing with this phenomenon that many of our contemporaries talk about when we get together uh, dealing with our growing now adult independent children like as if they have a right to be grow up you know it's just ridiculous That's how did that happen <laughs> so um Let's talk a little bit at the beginning about um, this challenge. And in many ways, it is a challenge for many uh, uh, boomer parents of negotiating um, life with now their grown, independent Mm. children who may not necessarily um, call them every day or listen to their advice Mm. as much as they used to. Mm. What's been your experience with that?
2: Well – what the research shows and what my experience is, is that the best way to figure out how to negotiate these boundaries with your 25 year old is to really look back at what it's like to parent an infant and a five year old and see how to adapt that. So there are some principles, some basic principles. One is the attachment bond. This is a mammalian function. It's the, child's felt sense of security, warmth, protection, and trust with the parent. And it's a very important um, factor in how well the child is going to adapt in life, how, well, how resilient they're going to be um, in dealing with any depression, anxiety, behavior problems that come up, how good a parent they're going to be, how good a spouse they're going to be, and actually how good a child they're going to be. How good is their relationship going to be with their aging parent?
0: You mean, Just to make one thing clear, what I'm hearing is how I parented my kid when they were five is really how I'm going to parent them when they're 40. Is that correct?
2: No. Um, we're going to use some of those principles, which I'll explain. Okay. Um, and adapt them for how to parent them when they're 25.
0: Okay, so 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 what are those some of those principles?
2: Okay. So here's the way to think about it. Um, kids of all ages, 5, 15, 25, they need love and structure. Right? That's what uh researchers call authoritative parenting, right? It's authoritarian if you only have the structure. It's permissive if you only have the love, and it's disengaged if you have neither. So you've got to have both. So what I teach parents is how to use both of those tools, how to use something I call attachment interviewing to see the world through your kid's eyes. And that way, the kid will get a, a better sense of what's going on for him. He will understand himself as you understand him. So I mentioned love and structure. It's important to deal first with the attachment-based part, the emotions that the child has, whether they're an infant, a 5-year-old, or a 25-year-old. So with an infant, you, you naturally knew what to do. The child's crying. You go, oh, oh, yeah, I'm right here, right here, right? And the emotional connection is what's important. The child needs to know that you can tolerate their difficult emotion. In fact, most parents are bringing their kids to me because they have some problem with emotion regulation. What does that mean? Well, they've got too much anxiety, too much anger, too much happiness, too much sadness. They can't – they're impulsive.
0: So mom and dad can't put put that – 30-year-old on their shoulder, pat them on the back and say, everything's going to be okay, dear. So
2: What's the analog? Yeah. Yes. So let me start with the five-year-old. So let's say you've got a five-year-old and he's playing with his favorite toy. And it's time to stop. It's time to go to grandma's or uh, uh, it's time for dinner. So what I recommend is parents say once, you know, Johnny, time to put the toy away, time for dinner. And then they have a choice. You could get into the structure. You could get into an argument with the child. Very easy, right? Very easy. Yes, and they're probably going to outlawyer you. Um, so what I recommend is an alternative, and this is like a left hand. This is your non-dominant hand, a tool that parents need to practice so that they can become familiar with it. So the tool is instead of um, getting into an argument to say um, – let's say a kid says – no, so you might say, "Oh, huh? It sounds like you feel pretty strongly about this." Well, yeah, huh? So what's making you what's making you so um, intense about this? Well, I'm mad. Oh, oh, that's interesting. So what's making you mad? Well, I love this toy. This is my favorite toy, you know. And then you could say, "I, I know what it's like, actually, to be in the middle of something, and and have to stop." And the child says, yeah, this is so if the child ends up on your shoulder at five, what a good outcome, right? Because then he knows that, that you're there in a really fundamental way and actually after the tears – tears are a universal human reset button for emotions, right? They um, allow us to communicate to others that we're in distress and they actually – Help us process loss, right?
0: So so jump ahead to the 30-year-old.
2: Okay. So um, what I teach parents to do is to listen to the the music of their communication with their kids and not get confused by the words in the dance that they're doing with their kids, right? In a couple's dance, it goes much better if you're listening to the beat. Um, So... Tone makes a 100% difference. So the way to interview your 25-year-old is to adopt a tone of curiosity and confidence and to be willing to invite and tolerate the child's difficult emotions. Something is – you know, he might say, uh, you know, I I just haven't been able to find a job. You know, and the parent – might say well you've got to do this and you got to do that, and why right. don't you get up in the morning and right. you're sleeping until two and the kid already knows that actually he's a smart kid, so what this what this interviewing can do is allow the child to kind of figure out together with you using you as a sounding board to figure out what is blocking him and if if you keep asking with curiosity and confidence. Oh, so so that's how the thought goes. Ah, huh, so then you worry about that. Oh, I get it. All right, so what do you think is the best approach here? Right? Then you could come up with a structure, with a way to help the child that the child wants from you. Right? Then you've got a sense of teamwork. You've got a feeling of cooperation, and you're out of the same old kind of argument that you've been stuck in.
0: And it's still bottom line about support and love. No matter what age.
2: That's right. If parents get too stuck in the rules and they get into authoritarian parenting, you know, let let me back up. Kids absolutely need structure. The last thing I say to to parents is no matter what the age of your kid, even at 25, he needs to know that you are thinking about him and that you are there to help him and that you'll – um, you 'll provide a firm and solid launch pad for him if the launch pad's too mushy you know the kid the the kid can 't reach escape velocity
0: so let's let 's go beyond the launch and let 's talk about a lot of the issues uh, that I run into in my work um, with baby boomer parents. their children are grown um, they now may be being blessed with grandchildren mm. And all of a sudden, a different set of dynamics takes place. Uh, I may be used to being very involved with my child, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, there's my grandchild, and there are boundaries being put up or barriers or i i I may not be able to see them or you know they have they have the other set of grandparents and they may not live near me
2: now they're setting boundaries with you aren't correct,
0: they? correct, correct so how What what are some of the tools that you've seen for people of our generation all of a sudden have this new whammy placed in front of them? Because not everybody is, you know, the ideal Hollywood, you know, everybody's sitting around the table happy and loving.
2: Of course. And the good news about this is that this is a skill. It's learnable. It just requires practice. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, you can use this as a grandparent – you can use this attachment interviewing with your five year old grandkids. If they're giving you a hard time, if they're not following the rules. Right? That's number one. Number two, you can interview your forty year old kid who's now a parent. Something's making you laugh. No,
0: no, because I'm I'm thinking of interviewing my five year old or seven year old. Uh, grandchild who outlawyer me continually, and I Absolutely. go right to the choice. I said, "Well, you win." I mean, it's a lot easier with Ayla and Jacob. You just win. You, you're right, and I'll do whatever you want. It's a lot
2: easier. But you can't always. No, no, it, I'm it, just kidding. It, it, yes.
0: Yeah. But go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: So um you can, uh, as a as a 65 year old parent, grandparent, uh, grandparent, you can interview the parent of your grandchildren. How, interview your child.
0: How that sounds fascinating.
2: Okay. okay. So. What you want to do is rather than trying to convince them of something like, I need to see my grandchild. Right. Rather than, than saying, you know, you're not doing it right. You're letting Johnny run around without, uh, without a shirt on. Or, you know, like that kid, um, needs to go to college. You're, you're being too soft on him. Whatever it is. Instead of doing that, you can find out what the parent's experience is. Find out through their eyes what it's like to be a parent of this child and talk with them and in the in that process of getting to understand them they'll understand their own parenting and at that point they might say to you well dad so what do you think i should do mm-hmm. you know then they can come to you for help what what parents dream of here's the equivalent for the, for your 15 year old is for the 15 year old to come to you and say you know, they're smoking pot too much at these parties, and I don't know what to do, right? So um, if you do too much, the kids need rules for sure, but if you're only doing lecturing and if you're only worried, you've shut down that pathway of the child coming to you. And that's the same when you're a grandparent dealing with your 40 year old child.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Richard Stern, a psychologist in private practice here in greater Philadelphia with specialties with family and children. You alluded to Dr. Stern, this idea, you know, this, the dance, and part of it always ref, I reflect upon this idea of as we get older and baby boomers uh, become parents and, and, and our adult children and grandparents, there's a certain sense of letting go. Mm. I, I I don't – have you encou- – I hope, I mean I'm a, I would assume that you've encountered the challenges of really baby boomer parents let, really having the ability to let go of and see their own children as full functioning independent adults. Mm. Um, what are some of the challenges of that letting go?
2: Well, I am shocked as my peers – uh, their kids go off to college. They're, they are shocked. They're prepared. They know that the emptiness thing is hard, but when it hits them, man, it's like a it's like a car accident. You know? <laughs> it really it really hurts.
0: See, it's real. It's very real. It, it, it's yeah. very
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. very real. And my my recommendation is kind of twofold. It's number one: do your work ahead of time. Do your work. Before the kid goes to college, to open those pathways, so that they can reach your kid needs you at 18,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And you don't want him completely cutting you off, and you don't want him calling you every 15 seconds saying, you know, I don't know how to fold the laundry. So, if you, if the pathway is open for important topics, um, that that will help. Um, Resolve, as you, resolve that issue as your role changes with them. It's really, in a way, it's not different than through the entire course of the child's development, right? You know, it's nice to have the kid on your shoulder. You know, he pretty much listens to you at that point, right? And there's a loss. There's, it's really different to have a nine-year-old who can argue back with you, and there's a certain loss there. So at each stage... There are losses, and there are new things to be gained
0: well I, I want to ask you just a question on this following up on this letting go thing because um, I'm interested in your opinion is sometimes the 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 challenges or the difficulty in letting go or or that reality when it hits um, does it speak to our generations or an individual 's inherent subconscious fear of their own aging or aloneness or Buried, buried deep in our subconscious psyche. As we watch this life cycle of our own children and grandchildren progress, it reminds us of our own mortality. No
2: question. Yeah. No question. And that may be unconscious at first, but it pretty quickly becomes conscious. I mean, part of aging is a simple way to say it is up to 40 or wherever that transition is, you're thinking about time since birth. Right. After that, you're thinking. Thinking about time till death.
0: Right. Yeah. So that, I mean, I, I've my own research and work has has really brought this home, you know that, and I, the the inability a lot of times to even verbalize this amongst mm. people is 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 frightening and challenging, and I'm sure you see it in your office. Um, it, it
2: comes out. Um, I'm glad you raised this because sometimes that inability to let go. Results in a kind of clinging on the parents' part, an over involvement right an overprotectiveness. It may have been there before, but um, it can it can kind of be exacerbated when the child leaves home, and that can have the opposite of the desired effect. You know the parents worry about the child is mm-hmm. there to protect the child, but since emotions are contagious, right, the parents worry can actually be um, received as a kind of criticism as a kind of vote of no confidence right like, so I don't think you can do this
0: to push people but so they push people away
2: exactly yeah it,
0: the, the the it is as you say it's a, a great image uh, the dance and it's a perpetual it's a continual dance it's a it continual is. dance of changing let me let me raise one thing before we start to run out of time in this segment um, and that is the negotiation of boundaries uh Significant numbers of baby boomers uh, are going through life-changing situations in their own marriages, their second marriages, third marriages. With that goes the inheritance of adult uh, uh, adult children, different patterns, pre-existing parental patterns. Um, how do you begin to negotiate those issues when that fifty-eight year old or sixty-five year old? Mm-hmm either through divorce or death of a spouse, then remarries and has to bring in a whole different set of circumstances and perhaps boundaries now with adults.
2: So um, this is the perfect place to use the lever of this um, attachment interviewing. What do you mean? mean? Because you want your, your spouse has died or you're divorced and you're remarried. You're having experience about that. But what you want to do is, for a moment, get off of your own excitement or worry about this, and find out what this is like for your kid, your kid who's thirty or forty or fifteen.
0: And how do you do that? That's that's you an have interesting to concept.
2: Ask with the tone of curiosity mm-hmm. and confidence, right? And um, you really have to not know the answer. You have to go for seeing it the way they see it. Suppose the child says something like, well, you never did anything for me, something absurd. You know, you could argue back against that. But it's probably better to say, so what's that been like? But tell me, that sounds like, you know, you felt like I wasn't there, you know, and maybe, maybe you felt lonely. Yes, I felt lonely. Right now you're getting somewhere.
0: Right Which, so my understanding that that let 's just play this scenario out, and it 's not an unusual scenario because um, i 've seen it i 'm sure you 've seen it are you saying in this interview technique mm-hmm. that if i 'm considering you know a second marriage subsequent marriage whatever, that I really have to spend a lot of time preparing my adult child, not necessarily my thirteen year old who you know blah blah but my forty two year old child both as saying, look, I, we need to have a conversation. This is what I'm planning. How are you feeling? W- you know, how can I help you That's with That's
2: how you could, you know, there's a, what you talked about, the transition right, and how hard right. it is. Mm-hmm. You're still the parent of this child. If you want to be a parent, that this, to, to really fulfill your role as a parent, you've got to, the most important thing you can do is to find out what the kid's experience is, whether he's four or 40.
0: So that you, you allude to something that's very interesting. I think that a lot of times it gets lost in translation or in growth that no matter how old you are or how old your children are, you're still their parent. Could you talk a little bit about, cause I think there there may be a perception that, well, my kid's 48 years old. They have a career of their own. Oh, you know, they're successful. Uh, we're just friends, you know, but you're really still yeah. their parent, aren't yeah,
2: they? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want your four-year-old to see you as a friend, and you don't want your 48-year-old to see you as a friend precisely. There is a, a beautiful maturing process that mm-hmm. can happen where kids no longer um, idealize or demonize their parents, but they, they sort of get to see, well, he's just another guy. He's just right. a human.
0: It's a human being.
2: Right. And that is an important maturational process. But the key um is is this understanding is is getting to where you can um you can see your child um, you, you can, it's It's not a friendship, but it is a a more human to human, a more i thou relationship. Your kid still needs advice from you, and he th- still needs you to be to he still needs to bounce ideas off of you
0: I, I there's some in an ideal situation there comes a point from what i'm hearing you say in in these relationships between let's say a baby boomer and their adult child where there is a sense of um not equality equanimity uh maturation you're still my parent, but we can relate on an adult level. Maybe that's what I'm seeing. Sure, an yes. adult level. Yes, adult, adult level. To
2: adult level. Right. And th- and that's what makes the transition to the other way easier, right? Because you've got the other hat slice of the sandwich. Right. Right. At a certain point, you're going to be taking care of your parents more right. than they're taking care of you, and that could happen at any time, right? And so if if you want there to be warmth and support in that relationship, in how your kids care for you, care for them in a way that, that is understanding and provides them what they need.
0: Yeah, I think that's really like crucial as you just alluded to that, that when it comes time for those roles to be reversed, that they, that the seeds that were planted when that kid was five and 10 and 15
2: and 25
0: really then come home to roost. And, and in most cases they, they come home very lovingly with great, with great care. Um, we all have seen situations where they don't. But I think it's really important for people of our generation to understand that those parenting skills, um, and those messages that were sent when these kids were young, they're there all the time, aren't You're they? They're modeling. They're there all, 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 the all, the
2: all the time. All the time. Every step of what you do as a parent, You're modeling, and it's it's especially when the child's before 25, when their brain is so plastic, they're really developing a template for what it's like to be in relationship to other, and including what it's like to be a parent and take care of other people.
0: So we're just about out of time. We have about 30 seconds left in this segment, Uh, Dr. Stern. Somebody wants to touch base with you. You have a website. What is it? How does somebody get in touch with you or take a look at what you're doing?
2: The website is richardstern.com. PhD.com.
0: So, in uh, this is the easiest question that I'll ask you in, in the 15 seconds we have left. Best piece of advice can you give to baby boomer parents facing adult children and grandparenting?
2: Learn how to listen and see it through their eyes.
0: That's great. That's, 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 thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Richard Stern. Psychologist here in private practice in greater Philadelphia, the specialty in child and family issues. Uh, Dr. Stern, thank you very much for uh, being with us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Continue good luck and success. Stay healthy and um, hope to see you again sometime soon. Right thank back you. At you. Thank this you very really much. Fun. Thank you. Thank you. We'll mm-hmm. be right back with our second segment guest, uh, Dr. Susan Lieberman, talking about her new book, Death, Dying and Dessert. Uh, an interesting menu for this morning. Uh, but first, we're going to take a little musical bridge, a little relaxing music here for a very lovely Tuesday morning.
1: Hi, this is Kendall's staff member, Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in Together, Transforming the Experience of Aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- 759-0128.
0: Welcome back to our second segment of today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address. And again, we're coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com, Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail, in case you want to reach us, or the Facebook page and again these shows will be archived as podcast on my website uh, www.jewishsacredaging.com and we are pleased to welcome through the magic of electronics i hope uh Dr. Susan Lieberman from Houston uh Dr. Lieberman are you there
3: Good morning i am the magic is working
0: Hi well, thank god thank god uh, or <laughs> thank our producer <laughs> <laughs> So we are looking at this book that you wrote, Death, Dying and Dessert, a great title if I do say so myself and uh, Dr. Lieberman is from Houston. She is an author, a life coach and an end of life consultant and indeed Death, Dying and Dessert uh, talks uh, specifically about reflections on questions, 20 questions about dying and I need to ask you right away, what does iced angel food cake have to do with Death, Dying, and Dessert?
3: Well, the first time I invited a group of my friends to come to dinner and talk about death and dying, most of them looked at me like I was nuts, but a few of them said sure, and I thought, well, what do you serve at a meal to discuss death and dying? Well, of course, you serve angel food cake. We liked it so much, we decided to do it again, and when I served devil's food cake, one of my smart-ass friends said, you know, we should call this group Death, Dying, and Dessert.
0: And that's how it began see in
3: how it began it in went philly on for years,
0: right in philly, and you lived in philly You'd, we'd have probably
3: taken out the tasty
0: cake or something like that <laughs> um so this book is organized around several questions and really is an introduction, and I, I think it's safe to say about having the conversation. Uh, as it's, it's being known more and more now. And, and your, your book begins with, it is clear that most of us understand that we will die. We just don't expect it to happen in our lifetimes. It's a sort of like a channeling of the Woody Allen line from Annie sure. Hall that I'm not, cons- I'm not scared of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, more or less. So this, these, uh, death, dying, and dessert meetings, which are now being replicated around the country in many ways, and in these death cafes, what what brought, what brought got you interested in this?
3: You know, it, as so many of us, and I just heard your previous speaker, I came to it because my mother was in the final throes of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she had been admitted to hospice, and a friend of mine had had the same experience with her father. And we would meet every three weeks, four weeks for sushi. And we always had the same conversation. Gee, I didn't know such and such. If I had only known that beforehand, I would have done this instead of that. And then next month, we'd have the same stupid conversation. If I'd only known this, I would have done this instead of that. I looked at her one day and I said, Oh, We can't all be this dumb going into our own final years. We've got to figure this out in advance. And that led to this conversation with friends saying, okay, let's talk about this. And after four years of those conversations, I said, I think I want to collect this in a book.
0: Do you think that the rise in interest really, because I'm picking this up as I go around the country, and I am I would interested if you're picking it up too in your work, that from our generation, the baby boom generation, because we've had such interesting experience, if I can use that word, with our own parents' end-of-life issues, that this issue becomes much more paramount once we've walked this walk and we and we just want to take more control over our own end of our own life. Are you, well, ex- are you experiencing I that?
3: I wouldn't say more interesting experiences. I would say that people come to this because they've had painful experiences.
0: Well, I used interesting with quotes around this.
3: In the Chinese way. Yeah. You know, we're – so many people I know I talk to in my talks are like me. They they like information, they like control, they like to feel in charge, they like to feel they can solve problems. And when they find they can't, it's deeply upsetting. And that was my experience. I thought, you know, I could figure this out. Um and I couldn't figure it out. It took it took a lot of work and effort, and it shouldn't be that hard. The 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 premise of the book is this the time to deal with these issues is not when you're in the ICU. It's not mm-hmm. when you've had a cardiac arrest. It's not when your parents are in the final six months or final years of their life or you. The time to think about it, I think, is when we're healthy, when we can sit down over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and we can have these conversations with our spouses, with our friends, with our children. I, well, I, I'm a deep believer in putting synapses in our brain that are there in the moments of crisis. You know how you get in your car and it drives for you; you don't have to think about which way is work.
0: Yeah, well, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember the Schuylkill Expressway, so it's very hard to do that. The Schuylkill
3: uh, Expressway terrified me as much as anything in my life.
0: It hasn't changed. Um, I was just on it. It hasn't changed. It's it's still it's still as terrifying. <laughs> There's that as entrance
3: ever. from the end of Center City under the Schuylkill Expressway, which is the only time I've ever shut my eyes going onto a freeway.
0: Yes. Well, most people, I, I was behind some guy whose show was shutting his eyes this morning, as a matter of fact. Oh. <laughs> but, but,
3: but maybe maybe that's a good analogy for end of life. You can't shut your eyes. No,
0: you can't. It's no, not you healthy. Can. So, you know, the, you talk about it in, in the book, um, you know, preparing the paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. And... Uh, reviewing all these plans in the face of what you call the five Ds, which are, I think are fascinating: decade, divorce, diagnosis, decline, or death. Can you elaborate on those five Ds a little bit? How important well, are they?
3: I, I, I think that's just to say, just because you've done this at say sixty-seven, mm-hmm. you're done. You don't you don't ever have to look again. You've you've done the paperwork, and now you can go right back to denial. And the five Ds suggest that there are changes in our lives. Right. You get a divorce, you get a diagnosis and those are the times when you want to go back and say, oh, let me just review this because things may have changed in my life. And indeed, things change in our lives all the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know when I do the the workshop on end-of-life stuff, I always tell people you need to review this every four to five years because exactly. everything changes.
3: Yeah. And, you know, we're focusing on how we need to prepare for our parents' decline, mm-hmm. but actually it could be ours. It's not enough to say to your parents, Mom, Dad, you need to get your paperwork in place. Um, I would say to people, and by the way, while they're doing it, you could do it too.
0: So which raises the question, this is one of the, the, great, the great questions right now. We come up across all the time, and I'm sure in your, in your speaking, and you speak around the country, and um, you know, you're an end-of-life consultant, and how do you begin... The conversation.
3: Ah, there are. First of all, you have to get clear in your own head. You can't have these conversations with your children or your spouse till you've had them with yourself. <laughs> um, for me, because I'm a great reader, I read. Um, in in my book, there are 20 other books that I suggest to people, and books like Atal Gawandi have come out since I wrote my book. So right. sit down and, and read through this. There, the, the reason we had those four years of dinner conversations is because we kept learning from each other you know i'd walk into a dinner saying well i really feel this way about that and a friend of mine would say that sounds stupid to me why do you feel that way and then we'd have a conversation at the end of the dinner i'd go gee maybe i don't feel that way about that i feel differently so you've got to work your way through this because i like so many of the people who are listening have no experience dying i've never done it
0: yeah, and you can't come back, and the rumor has it, and, and say, yeah, well, no, I think you know, I'll...
3: I'm, I'm going to rethink that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, I didn't like so, that
0: way. I think I'll do it this way.
3: So I am I believe that talking and reading and thinking and listening is how we get clear. Then, to answer your question, how do you begin the conversation? I suggest here here a couple of ways. Um, ask for the conversation as a birthday gift. It's what I did with my children. Um We spend part of the year in California where one of our sons lives. The other son was going to be there right around my birthday. I said, hey, guys, I have a great deal for you this year. I know what I want for my birthday. They said, oh, wonderful, what is it? I said, I want you to come to dinner and talk about end of life. And their first reaction was, what's wrong? (laughs)
1: Nothing's
3: wrong. Nothing's wrong. I'm fine. I just want to have this conversation while I'm fine. And the next comment was, oh, Mom, we don't want to do this. And I went, I know, but I do. And this is what I would like for my gift. Will you please give this to me? How can they say no to their mother?
0: Well, then you so, you raise a you raise something that's really really interesting. Um, and and again, we're speaking with Dr. Susan Lieberman, the author of Death, Dying, and Desert, um, an end of life consultant, an author, and life coach. Um, how do you th- this idea of oh, we don't want to talk about the denial? I, I've spoken to to several people, as I'm sure you have who want to have this conversation, and they'll raise it with their adult children, and they'll immediately get this tremendous pushback. Yes. There's nothing it, wrong with it, you. It works
3: both ways. Right, the right. The kids don't want to talk about it, or the kids want to talk about it, and the parents don't want to talk about it. So you can ask for it as a gift. It can be a birthday gift. You can say to your extended family, as a friend of mine did, she bought 10 books. I said, Elizabeth, why, why do you need 10 books? She said, because I have five children. And they're all getting this book in advance, and I'm giving it to my siblings, and I've told them that the morning of Thanksgiving we're having this conversation prepared. So you can be sort of, you can order it. You can do your own paperwork and say to your children, we just want to go over this stuff, this legal stuff, just so you'll know where it is, as a quiet segue into it. You can do it in terms of legacy giving. Um, maybe you've been a great supporter of the Jewish Federation or the local library or the hospital, and you can say to your children, you know, we want to make sure that you understand our concern for this organization and the pieces we've put in place to to make that concern go forward and use that as a way to do it. Um, I don't believe that you can insist that your parents or even your children talk about it if they refuse. But there's... um, the power of repetition. If they don't do it at first, you can keep saying, you know, I really would like you to do this. I'd really like us to schedule a time. Let me know when you can do it. It's really making me unhappy. And here's one suggestion I heard that I think is very powerful. Instead of saying to your parents, you need to do this because all of us hate to have our children tell us what we need to do just as they hate to hear us tell them what they need to do. Mm -hmm. You can say... You know, Mom, you know, Dad, you've been great parents to me my whole life. And really, you've given me this wonderful foundation. But there's one more thing I need for you. I have this tremendous anxiety around not having this conversation with you. Could you give this to me as one last gift? That's pretty hard for a parent to reject.
0: No, the idea of a gift, because it's a gift in a variety of different ways. You you know this is a very these are very obviously and it takes as you are alluding to this is not something that usually just says we're well, just going to do this today it sometimes can take months or longer for a family to get to the point where they're going to be able to have this conversation
1: or give
3: them you know give them my book give them Atal Gawandi's book give them um, Jane Gross's book give them anybody's book right. <laughs> It doesn't matter give them the website for the conversation project and say, this is what I've been thinking about, take a look at this and see what you think is sort of a lead-in. Sometimes it's easier for people to think about it privately before they sit down and have a conversation with you.
0: These are very high-rate conversations, obviously, and, and involve tremendous amount of psycho-spiritual issues that sometimes get repressed or never even dealt with. But, but they t- can also be well that's my you, you you had correctly anticipated my next move um because of the towards the end of the book uh you have this chapter on can death be funny and talk to me about this chapter
3: <laughs> I'll tell you what, we all have stories here's one from my own experience my mother was in hospice for the third time my mother had failure to fail so the first two times she failed out of hospice and the third time she wasn't failing out she was um we were withholding food and nutrition she was in terrible pain and it took my mother 12 days to die and mm. every day i sat there and at about day six i went out to the nurse's station and i said to her what am i doing I, i'm sitting here day after day killing my mother and she looked at me and she said what are you going to do susan send her to physical therapy <laughs> my mother was 94 and couldn't move and i started to laugh and the tension that I have been holding in my body broke. You know, For the first time in days, I could eat a sandwich. So it it was funny. I mean, I hope it's funny to other people.
0: No, I think it's so – I'm glad you wrote that because in in the book because I think it's – people get so emotionally and, and rightfully so. It's just heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. But the idea to – the fact that sometimes you can inject a little humor and there is humor in – you know, finding humor in a lot of things, even in the most dire circumstances. Um, and as you point well, out... My
3: kids my kids would make cracks. My son says to me, you are the stuff of stand-up comics, Mom. Whose mother talks about aging and dying all the time? I said, Jonathan, anybody my age.
0: Right, right, right. And and as you point out, there's, there, there's a whole host of sitcom from MASH to a lot of other things that find in deeply uh, serious issues, touches of humor. This this
3: is why I think, why I like the title Death, Dying, and Dessert, because the the subject is so heavy that a little dessert, a little sweetness, a little cake, a little wine, a little laughter, some fresh flowers on the table ease the moment, you know?
0: It's it's like there's nothing that good chocolate can't cure, or at least help. Let me ask you a question, though, that has come up. it's gotten a lot of play on my website when people have written about it. I'm, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you deal with it in your consultations. And by the way, before we move on, if somebody wants to reach you, how do they contact you?
3: Oh, the best way is just to email me, Susan at Lieberman dot net.
0: Susan at Lieberman is spelled how?
3: L-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N dot net, like Joseph Lieberman, our former senator. Okay. Some, not mine, somebody's.
0: Yes. <laughs> um. I want to talk. I want to ask you a question about how people handle these conversations and situations. Being alone, they don't have. They don't have a spouse. They don't have children. They don't have a. They don't have any siblings. They're alone. Okay, they're, so they're that's alone.
3: really, really interesting. There are two women in our death, dying, and desert group who are single, not been married, and don't have children. Um, so we've talked about how do you get through that. One one way is to develop a relationship with a geriatric case manager in advance, and that's what one of the women did. Um, She made friends for money with a woman who was a geriatric case manager and said, I need to know that somebody's going to be there when I need them. Um, Friends, of course, who and friends could be in similar situations, could form a support group there. What do you call it? Um, aging in place mm-hmm. communities.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you could, if you don't live in one, you could. For, this is harder. You could form one or join one. Move somewhere, but this is tough. Um, all the more reason I would suggest to be very clear in your paperwork, and with your physician, and to have somebody that can act as your health proxy. I, I, the paperwork is all important, and I advocate that. But the most important is to have somebody who knows how you think, knows what you want, and can speak for you because you can have all your papers in place and people cannot read them.
0: Uh, Susan, you, you, towards the end of the book, you, you use a term that I, I'd like to explore with you. Uh, it's Chapter 20, and you say, how do we find grace under pressure? What do you mean by the word grace? It's a loaded term in a variety of different religious situations. What do you, what do you mean by that? That's
3: an interesting question. You know, nobody's asked me that before, so let's work through it together. I would say that grace means not resisting. You know, when you are given a terminal diagnosis, especially if you haven't thought about this, there's an impulse to say, why me? And the answer is, why not you? Mm-hmm. I mean, who? which one of us is immune from death?
0: It's Joby. So
3: how to... How to except with equanimity. If not, I I, I don't know that if I were told tomorrow that I had three months to live, I would be completely peaceful. I think I would be roiled inside. But I would know that the end has come. Um, I I walk around, this is going to sound a little pessimistic, and I don't believe it is. It's an intimate thing to share with you, but I walk around knowing that one day something bad will happen. That doesn't make me sad. It just It's just the truth. Mm-hmm. One day something bad will happen. I don't know whether it will be a long time coming or it will be tomorrow. I don't know whether the bad will unfold quickly or or over a period of time. But I do know that I will die. That's clear. And when it happens, I hope that I can spend the time that I have left with as much joy and laughter and love as possible.
0: Is is accepting grace the same as surrender?
3: No, I have to turn the tables and ask you what you mean by surrender.
0: Well, it's, it's just accepting whatever happens, happens and um you know, so be it, as opposed to the, the natural inclination, given the, the medical terminology of warfare, of if I have this diagnosis I'm gonna fight it, fight it, fight it. I'm never gonna give up. I'm never gonna give up. As opposed you know, to I'm
3: a, a great admirer of the um he died a few years ago, I think. Sherwin Newland who was Right,
0: how we die.
3: Yeah. So he he writes about hope and he said one should never give up hope. But we change what we hope for. So right now I hope that I don't get a difficult diagnosis but I hope I don't get sick. Mm-hmm. And then if I get sick, I hope I get better. And then if I don't get better, I hope I can manage my illness. And then if I find that it's going to be terminal, I hope that um, it won't be terminal soon, or I hope that I can manage the pain. And then when I find that the end is coming soon and I am going to be in pain, I hope that I can spend as much time as lovingly with my family and that the people who care for me can alleviate my pain. So all of that is hope, but the nature of that hope keeps changing, and that's grace, I think. It should be
0: realistic about what you want to hope for does that, does no that's help? fine no i I I think that's absolutely hundred percent true because it also speaks in a way to some of the fear i mean you you talk about some of the basic fears that people have when they walk start to walk down this wall even even now when you're perfectly healthy and the when the deflector shields are down, fears of pain and dependency, I think you talk about dementia and and something that's rarely talked about, but it 's quite true with the fear of poverty. Um, talk to me a little bit about the f- something that I see, and maybe it's because I'm talking it from a clergy point of view, the fear of being alone, of, of dying alone, of being alone at the end of one's life.
3: You know, if you die in a good hospice, you won't be alone. Um, there will be someone sitting in the room with you all the time. Um, that's one thing. Second of all, you can have people in the room and still be dying alone.
0: What do, you, what do you mean?
3: I mean, you can be alone inside yourself,
0: uh-huh, okay. feeling
3: disconnected because you haven't finished whatever it is you need to finish. Um, which is one of the reasons you should think about this early. You, you gotta. I, here's a line that I, I I really like. Wanting revenge is like taking a poison pill and hoping the other person will die. <laughs>
0: It eats away at you. It does. It eats away. It, it, it eats so, away. so it eats
3: away. Um, I'm not saying that we should. I'm not. Come by. I forgive everybody. You know, I'm not that generous. But you gotta, you gotta put to rest the stuff that's eating at you because I think that feeds loneliness.
0: So it's not uh, only. And, and, Go ahead.
3: and we can't tell. At least I can't tell people there are ways never to be alone. I, you may feel alone. You may feel alone. I don't know that there's a good answer for that. Do you have an answer?
0: Um, Some people have
3: spiritual faith that keeps them from feeling alone. Others don't.
0: Others don't, and they and and they do dial. But but you know, but to channel again the Newland book, who I think his thesis was, we die as we have lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who, despite being surrounded by people their entire life, are existentially in a very powerful way very much alone and I think that at the end of their life that's one of their great fears and it goes to I think your concept of having not only the conversation with your family but having a conversation with yourself is really very powerful and very important and we don't teach people uh, there's a deficit in education around all these issues which is why your group you know and, and the death cafes and the interest that so many more now people are having this conversation with friends and their selves because it's time. It's, we have about two minutes left, so I have to two, ask two you. Two
3: comments about that. I think okay. there's more, more conversation in the media and on the radio about the conversation people's having than actually in people's kitchens and living rooms. I don't think there's as much going on as we would hope. Second, I think we all do dialogue. We don't want to take other people with us. Essentially, it is a singular act.
0: It is a singular act. That is correct. That is correct. And that's why the rituals that surround it from every religious perspective, I think are there to try to give some sense of not only comfort, but you're not alone. Right. You're not alone. So now we're, we have a minute left, so I'm going to ask you a really easy, easy question. <laughs> since, since you're a, a, a consultant, author, life coach, and you consult on end of life, what's your position on, on this, the growth of legislation on, um, choice and dying?
3: I absolutely favor choice and choice and dying. If you have ever sitting with my mother it made it very clear to me that um, people should choose what they wish. I, I I see no virtue in constant unrelenting suffering.
0: And the power of choice um, is there. And so the power of
3: choice. I, and I understand I, I've read the other side.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
3: Everyone doesn't agree, but but you don't have to agree. You don't have to choose this.
0: That's right. I think that's really important. You don't have to choose this. It's not, we're just allowing people to have an informed, intelligent adult choice, which is what uh, we ask for. Real quickly, because we're, we're just about out of time. Again, if somebody wants to reach you, how do they do that?
3: Susan at Lieberman, L I E B E R M A N dot net. By the st- way, you know, people say it's God's will. Um, If he wanted me to die, then I would die while sitting in the hospital hooked up to a thousand machines. Yes. I don't get it.
0: Death, Dying, and Desert is the book. It's available at bookstores and also on The Great God Amazon, I am assuming.
3: You probably won't find it in bookstores, but you will find it at Amazon.
0: Amazon. And the author, Susan Lieberman from Houston, Texas. Susan, thank you very, very much for it joining us. It was a pleasure
3: here. to have this conversation. Thank you. You take thank care. You good work you do.
0: You Thank you very much. You too. Continued take success. Care. Good bye luck bye. to everybody. Thank you very much for joining us on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We'll see you next Tuesday, 10 a.m. Eastern. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.